0: And welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, Decker, a medieval historian. And today I'm joined by fellow medievalists and hosts of the Modern Medieval podcast, Megan and Ello. Hello.
1: Hi. Hi. Thank you for welcome. having us. Yeah, we're Thank excited to be Thank you so much for here. joining me.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves and uh, also actually about why you wanted to talk about our particular piece of media today, which is the Netflix series Disenchantment? Sure. I'll, I'll
1: start. Um, so this is Megan speaking, by the way. Elo and myself met while we were in a master's program at University College London last year. And we were in a course taught by medieval Art historian Professor Robert Mills, and his course was called Modern Medieval and like representation, replication, and something else.
2: Uh, (laughs) It's it's amazing how we have actually forgotten like the rest of it as well. The name, but we did get his
1: blessing (laughs) to take the name of the course for our podcast, which was really sweet of him. But we just looked at media representation of the medieval as well as like the Gothic revival in the 19th Mm -hmm. century and the development of gothic literature with the castle of atranta at the end of the 18th century we went on a field trip to barcelona to look at catalan gothic architecture as well as like the influence of that on architect gaudi it was just a really interesting and flexible course and no one in the class of like 12 i think there were of us around that were medievalists in any way Mm -hmm. shape or form i myself had like never actually taken a medieval course I had kind of always been Uh a place out of them due to the American (laughs) education system and the one that I was supposed to be in which was like a Chaucer course was from 6 to 9 p.m on Wednesday evenings and so I would just like leave halfway through class during the break because I was a bad student at that time. Um, (laughs) I didn't know you did (laughs)
3: that. Yeah
1: But the joke's on me, because I'm now a medievalist. (laughs) (laughs) PhD, I just started this past January at the University of Manchester in England, where I'm looking at saints' lives and hagiography, which is the literature about them, specifically or especially virgin martyrs, and comparing them or reading them alongside in conjunction with, I'm still figuring out exactly what that link is, but to... Mm women in contemporary horror, both literature and film and television. So all of that as literature in broad strokes. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Helen Lyle and Candyman, Vanessa Ives and Penny Dreadful. So this like idea of the tormented woman that yeah. part angel, part demon, and looking at this historic kind of continuation but too. So that's me and a little bit of Elo and I in a nutshell. <laughs>
2: I'm Ello and kind of similarly to Megan and most of the people on, on her class we I kind of came to the course because I wanted something about the like to learn about like art of the past in a way because mm-hmm. it was something that I thought I wouldn't be interested in at all so I thought I might as well challenge myself and it actually ended up being the course I enjoyed the most yeah. and similarly to Megan like my encounter with the medieval was medieval Italian literature with like Dante and I hated Dante and oh. jokes on me again. <laughs> oh,
0: sorry. sorry. No,
2: no, I know. But then I did my master's dissertation on like representations of Dante's paradise in mm. um, William Blake's work and Botticelli's uh-huh. and Dali's. So, like, jokes on me again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess we also started the podcast as well. Like, once the pandemic started really yeah. becoming prominent in the world, and yes there were quite a lot of links that we saw of things that we'd learned in the class and just thought it'd be quite a fun thing to do. And yeah, I'm, I'm not doing are. a PhD and that's that's, that's, that's my life really. <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, we started the podcast as a way to like procrastinate, but be doing productive procrastination yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. because we were technically supposed to be working on our master's dissertation. dissertations. Yeah. But because we ended school You know, beginning of May, and then you're just in lockdown all summer. You're not supposed to go outside, even though you did, because it was a beautiful summer and it's just life. But (laughs) I mean, our our dissertations weren't due till September, so I mean, that's a long time. And while you're (laughs) dispersed, it yeah, and just while waiting for resources like Ello had to wait so long for books to make it to her Mm
2: -hmm. it's still a trauma I can't talk about it
1: (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah like I was working on a Polish feminist artist uh Eva Mm Partum, and the creation of a new poetics in her 1970s poetic art Mm -hmm. and so I had a book that I just could not find in <laughs> anywhere I was like well if I could go to Poland like I was planning to I would have gotten a copy of this probably just at a normal store but I can't right. get access to it and the library has like a stupid rule where you can only have two chapters and I was like but it's a pandemic so are we going to change the rules or not so you know right. like, emailing the universities like mm-hmm. Columbia and Princeton and places that had it and if they responded. Mm-hmm. So, I was trying to piece together this monograph. Yeah. So, just the waiting in that, where you're like, I can't really do anything until I see what these scholars have said. Right. So, yeah, we thought, I mean, yeah, we just, (laughs) being friends and during Bob's class, we became quite close and had just lots of similar thoughts and ideas and thought, well, like, let's, there isn't really a lot of podcasts like this and we enjoy talking about it. And we're becoming more medievally inclined. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, our first episode was about the infamous, I'm gonna get medieval on your ass line yes. in fiction. Mm-hmm. And just kind of talking about that. We, like you, look for where the medieval, you know, air- square quotes, medieval, medievalism, mm-hmm. ideas of the medieval, however you wanna phrase it, show up. And mm-hmm. a very recent and you know, arguably obvious one is the Netflix series, Disenchantment. Yes.
2: I love the little segue there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes, thank you so much for segueing. So yes, we're going to be talking about the Netflix series, Disenchantment, which uh, started in 2018 and is ongoing. Uh, Full disclosure, we'll be talking mostly at least about the first season because that is all I have watched. Mm -hmm. But I am looking forward to continuing. And this is actually a show that I hesitated to watch because as soon as I saw it I knew at some point I was going to presumably have to cover it and so mm. I was like well I can't watch it because I'm just gonna have to watch it again and take notes at some point um <laughs> so I delayed until uh, we uh, we made these arrangements to uh, cover this but it is uh, created by Matt Groening of course known for shows such as The Simpsons and Futurama the latter of which is an all-time favorite of mine oh cool yeah I yeah, I, was, I yeah, I, I I love Futurama. It's still sort of one of my kind of comfort shows. That it's something I can just watch basically any episode, and uh, it just like is very familiar and it's funny mm-hmm. and it's light. And uh, so I've always been a big fan of that. And stars Abby Jacobson from Broad City as mm-hmm. Bean or Princess Bean or T- Tia Beanie is her yeah, full name. Yes, her name. Princess yes. Tia Beanie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, Eric Andre as Lucy, who is her own personal demon.
1: Which oh. is I want one. I want. Like, I do too. Well, like I want my own personal demon, but like in a cute little demon
0: form, like Lucy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it kind of looks like a talking cat. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, I love
1: my cat, but he sometimes is just an unhelpful demon. I want one. Right. It's gonna be kind of you know like his dark materials, you know, because those are demons. Yeah, also. but. Also, like Lucy Demon, that gets like yeah. pushes you to do
0: things you wouldn't normally do.
2: I feel yeah. like I need the sass in my life. That's my life. Yeah, what I right. Mean.
0: I do have a sassy talking cat, but she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't talk in English, and really, um, oh, yeah, okay. the only thing she tries to get me to do is feed her more. Um,
2: uh, yeah, that is
0: not the one. She's yeah, she's eighteen and has a lot of opinions oh. about various wow. things. Wow, that is,
1: she is a good for her. That's it, yeah good age cat. Mine's three and a half. He too does have, share his opinions, especially when I come home from work. He does uh, tell me the song and lore of his people and everything that happened to him while I was gone. He has the zoomies right now, so I apologize mm-hmm. if I sound shaky. He is not light-footed despite being a cat.
0: I mean, it would be far from the first animal intrusion on this podcast. I'm <laughs> even taken to describing Carmen as my producer because uh, she is so often makes contributions mid-podcast. But yes, we also have the elf, uh, or maybe not elf. Hmm? Elfo. Elfo? Question mark? <laughs> yes, played by Nat Faxon. John DiMaggio as King Zog, who is Bender in Futurama. Bender oh. is
1: like the lobster guy, right? Or no, he's the robot. Oh, he's the robot? Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah,
1: I think that I knew he did a voice just from like IMDb, but I didn't know which character.
0: Yeah, I was just started looking things up because there there's actually a lot of people and I didn't even look up all of them, but there were a lot of people who uh, just as they were speaking, I was like, I've definitely heard that voice before
3: mm, and yeah. uh, was
0: pretty sure it was somebody on Futurama at least. Um, so I mean, similarly, uh, Maurice LaMarche, who is oddball, does a lot of voices on Futurama, including I wrote down the he is a Kif, Calculon and Lur. Uh, so he has a lot of the uh kind of well-known secondary characters
1: okay because the late the person who does uh prince Derek's voice in disenchantment i believe does like quite a few of the secondary and third third dairy third string characters in the simpsons
2: oh right Uh, it's quite interesting because like with voices it's it's sometimes hard to like place them but then when when you see it it's just kind of difficult to not yeah associate it with it
1: yeah well like as you were um gesturing towards Sarah like a lot of them do do (laughs) (laughs) a lot of them do multiple voices (laughs) I'm sorry I said do do and I just like my five-year-old brain disrailed itself you just said I think it was Maurice LaMarche who does oddball but he also does like one two three four five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, at least 11 different voices throughout the disenchantment run.
0: And some of these people really are so talented because they're able to do such, uh, to do such distinct voices and characters. So I didn't note down all of his roles in uh, Disenchantment, but having, you know, noted down even just three of the voices that he does in Futurama, they're Mm -hmm. very distinct voices. They're very distinct characters. I didn't realize when I heard his voice in this, I knew I'd heard it somewhere, Mm -hmm. but of those three characters, I don't, I didn't, I didn't actually know that those were all the same actor voicing them. Uh, uh-huh. So some of these, yeah. you know, voice acting talents are really just exceptional.
1: Yeah. Yes. hundred percent agree on that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the last uh, cast member I especially wanted to oh. mention is Matt Berry as Merkimer, the prince turned pig, who uh, <laughs> is fabulous in what we do in the shadows.
3: Yeah.
1: Yes. And he also has the show um, Toast of London, which is quite mm. entertaining. That His voice as Merkimer is Yeah, perfect. it's really
3: good. Yeah. And haven't it's excellent. Yeah. Gotten-
1: to uh it's an episode in season season three three, yeah but uh it's so good because he is like america it up and it's i don't want to spoil it for you because it's funny yeah he's great
0: Yeah, Yeah, he's a lot of fun. He's an interesting character. Yes. So first proper section is the enumeratio or recap, where we talk a little bit about the particular media that we're discussing. And Mm -hmm. for, especially because this is a TV show and therefore a little bit more elaborated sometimes and with uh, a lot of different kind of mini arcs than would necessarily be the case in a film. I'm going to just give a very brief statement of the premise and then we can just kind of generally chat about uh, the different kind of characters and arcs as we feel inspired to do so sounds great but so the show centers on princess tiabini who is uh, about to enter an arranged marriage and is very much not happy about this fact and does ultimately manage to escape it and we follow her through this season with her escapades along with her demon lucy and we'll talk more about lucy momentarily as well as her friend Elfo the Elf, who has just uh, escaped from his own boringly pleasant life in the Elf homeland.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, we, we follow the three of them and uh, we start with essentially a lot of what's the word? episodic episodes, right? That we have these kind of one-episode arcs, and for the last, about four episodes move into a bit more of a running plot line surrounding her father King Zog's effort to get the Elixir of Life, uh, which we learn is ultimately to de-stone her mother, who we assume is dead but has actually just been poisoned and therefore turned to stone. We follow this kind of effort to get the Elixir of Life, which ultimately ends in the revival of Queen Dagmar, who uh, it was Will then turn out is uh maybe maybe that wasn't quite such a good thing as we anticipated it being yes definitely, definitely.
1: <laughs> and yes that's such a great Intro. overview of that yeah. th- of the first season because a lot does start to happen in seasons two and three and, yes
2: uh, right I'm excited it, it gets I think we so we spoke about this briefly um before but the first episodes, we didn't think like flowed as well as it mm-hmm. like, as then it does in first, and yeah, second and third season kind of.
1: Yeah. So for any of our modern medieval the podcast listeners who are tagging on to this, you know, and listening to us elsewhere, we did do an episode on disenchantment, but it was very basically disenchantment was much more of just like a vehicle for us to talk about other issues in the medieval <laughs> rather than the show itself and yeah the first few episodes we feel take some time to kind of get going it feels yeah. quite slow and the jokes kind of just sit there at least like personally for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like that awkward like and then it's just silence and you're like oh <laughs> you're trying too hard but by the end of season one you do really get like swept up in it and get much yeah. more and they kind of hit their rhythm and that does continue throughout the next two seasons mm-hmm. Though sometimes it gets too complex for its own good, okay. I would say. I don't know if you
2: feel the same, ello now that you're seen I've all... I've now watched it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought, yeah, I think sometimes, I think it's kind of just the nature of that kind of show that sometimes it yeah tries harder than it should. And then... Yeah. Just, it's, um, some attempts don't always go to fruition, really. I think it is really good, like... At the beginning, when I started watching, I, was, I wasn't that convinced. But then now that I've watched it, all, I think it's. I've watched the fourth installment when yeah. it comes out.
0: Yeah. It took me a couple episodes as well to get into it. And I did like the humor pretty much right away, which uh, is you know, not surprising. it's very it's very similar to Futurama. Right. And uh, so there were a lot of just individual jokes that I really enjoyed in the first couple of episodes. But it wasn't until maybe something like three or four that I started to get really into it, which is in part that I started to get more invested in the characters mm-hmm. because I think, and I think that's really one of the strengths of Futurama. I'm gonna keep talking at Futurama, I'm sure. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, one of the one of the great strengths of Futurama, is that it establishes ultimately an ensemble cast of a few kind of central figures. I would say kind of similarly, there's sort of three figures that are in some ways the kind of most prominent, but then a lot of people who are kind of like just a tear down mm-hmm. uh, and that it has this really interesting, big supporting cast. And it's the relationship dynamics between them that also contributes to adding to both the humor, but also to the, uh, making the show have moments that also feel sweet. Uh, Futurama also has like, and the one of the things that will make me cry no matter what is the dog episode on Futurama, Jurassic Bark.
1: What a great name. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen that Futurama. I've seen Futurama here and there. Like I've seen the pilot episode so many times. It's like whenever Mm -hmm. Futurama's on, for some reason that's like the episode I come across. But yeah, Jurassic Bark is not one that, I think I have seen in my hodgepodge
2: viewing. What happens in that episode that makes you cry? If, if it doesn't spoil it too much. So,
0: uh, so I'll, I'll say what happens in the episode. It's not really connected to, you know, big plots of the series or anything mm-hmm. like that. He discovers his own fossilized dead dog from a thousand years ago, or Fry does, discovers his own fossilized dog from a thousand years ago. And then they find out that they can revive the dog, but he decides not to, because he realizes that the dog's older and he's like, well, the dog, I'm sure had a happy life after I'd left and has forgotten me. And I'm glad the dog had that life. Mm. And then we realize that we like go back and see what actually happened to the dog and find out that basically the dog like lived its entire life, like waiting for Fry to come back. And I'm like tearing up talking about it. Oh Um, my
2: gosh. (laughs) And do they revive him?
0: No, because we as the audience know this, but Fry doesn't know this and thinks that, oh, well, the dog, you know, was happier and has forgotten me. And so, you know, I, it's, you know, basically I shouldn't revive the dog. And so it is, it is very, very sad. Uh, I... Yeah. yeah it, it gets oh, me every time
1: <laughs> when it's one of those things where fry is doing an admirable thing like yeah
0: right that he just kind of decides essentially that you know it's the self it would be the selfish choice to revive the dog but right
1: he's just like how could he know that yeah it's actually not like the fair choice but yeah trying to be a good person at the yeah. same time
2: it's kind of like the richard gear film isn't it the one where the dog is that the richard Gere one where oh i'll look it
0: up sorry I, have no but, idea. I mean, a dog dog things. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't know. I know you're talking. about Unfortunately, either, but dog things get me in general. Like, I have definitely also started crying at describing the end of the movie Homeward Bound. So. Yeah,
2: it's called Hachi: A Dog's Tale. I don't know if you've watched it. No, I've I heard of it,
0: but I've, I think it was a book as
1: well.
2: Yeah, okay. it's a, it's about this man. I th- I think I've watched it a really long time ago, so I don't really remember very well. But this dog tries to find his owner or waits for his owner in one place, and then he mm. never comes back and that kind of like story where you're kind of yeah emotionally invested and then just find it tragic
0: <laughs> yeah and they always do that with dogs but uh <laughs> but like, yeah and, and this show hasn't developed as well I and mean, especially in the in the end uh, or well we're obviously jumping around but so i'll just say in you know so the end of the season we have elfo dies her father exiles Elfo because he's upset that Elfo he learns is not in fact all elf and therefore his blood is not useful for the elixir of life. And so he's so annoyed that he just kicks him out of the kingdom. And ultimately as, you know, as then things develop, Elfo is killed. Bean has to make this decision when she does, which she is able to use the elixir of life between reviving her dead mother and her dead friend
3: mm-hmm.
0: and chooses her mother and this is a moment that has real emotional resonance, I thought. Yeah, I yes, agree.
1: Definitely, because throughout the season, you do get these like moments of being wishing her mother was there because mm-hmm. the king, King Zog, therefore her father, because she's the princess, is initially portrayed as kind of a stereotypical, self-centered, distant father figure that's also kind of a bumbling fool and doesn't really know how to rule the kingdom. And... Beans just left to her own devices. And this is part of the reason why yeah. she's the way that she is. And just, I mean, her family at the beginning of the series, in a sense, is the people down at the bars where she can like drink right. them under the table. And then throughout the series, you know, in the first episode, we're introduced to Lucy, who is emerges out of this box that looks like the Hellraiser box. And then <laughs> Elfo comes along you know, as um, you were saying, he leaves Elfwood and just like kind of ends up in dreamland (laughs) and Mm -hmm. they become this like trio. And in that, yeah, this like family more than buddies, like they're all so different, but they kind of in their differences balance one another out and sometimes make each other better people and sometimes make one another exceptionally worse people. They really do play with that and like, Which is potentially a
0: real family dynamic. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, when Elfo dies, I mean,
1: yeah, that scene. I mean, it's not an easy decision for her. And you feel the weight of both looming large. And you understand the merits and cons of both. But I mean, her mother's been absent since she was what, like three or something? Like very little. And Mm Yeah, thinks that maybe if her mother returns now that she has this opportunity, that it may fix everything or help
2: mend right. a wound. Yeah. It's and- kind of a Sophie's choice, isn't it? Like whatever yeah. she does, it will kind of have repercussions either way. Oh, yeah.
0: And it also very much has this implication almost of this conflict between found family versus blood family mm-hmm. and where your loyalties should lie because it's also interesting because you also see this, there's this dynamic after her mother is brought back that her relationship with her father also becomes in a way sort of different because she's trying to kind of model this particular way of being with her father for her mother, which is not actually the way that she relates to her father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And Bean's relationship with King Zog throughout the series, especially in season three, becomes much more rich and, um, like, dynamic. Like, they grow as individuals so much. And that is something that's really lacking, I think, in season one. Even though you have a bit of character development and you do have a, you know, the story gets stronger. Like, season two, especially with Bean, nails character development Mm -hmm. for her. And I think season two at this moment is the best of the three. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah and then we also learned the repercussions of bringing Dagmar back because oh Dagmar is
0: terrible apparently. He's the freaking worst. (laughs) And so and the other thing which I think is interesting is that there are of course all of these medieval-ish fairy tale tropes about Mm. the evil stepmother and Mm. she has a stepmother Una who is know it just seemed like likable especially but ultimately she's not evil Mm -hmm. she there's no you know and she's not necessarily everybody's personal cup of tea as a person but uh she's or at least where we are now I actually don't think that it seems like Una is evil but the one who actually then does turn out to be evil in that she has now and uh, we end with her, you know, poisoning and turning to stone pretty much the entire kingdom. I think the only yeah. people still remaining are Bean and Zog and herself. But yeah, Dagmar is, Dagmar's evil, apparently. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, and, that is something you'll see more of, like Una is definitely. Right. I think we've decided, I mean, I think I, we really like her. She mm-hmm. ends up being quite funny and like,
1: yeah, just very so different. Kind of- yeah, she's yeah. one of my favorite characters exiting season three. But yeah, like the also because she's not evil, but then the way they depict her because she's from dark Darkmire? Dankmire. Dink, Dink, Dankmire. <laughs> the Swamp Kingdom. Um, yeah, the Swamp Kingdom. And there are these like amphibious creatures. So she like crawls on the walls and like suction cups things and which is kind of sinister in a way, but like not, but creepy just, and, and they do kind of play right. on that. Her, like, sw- swirling around. But yeah, she's not a horrible stepmother. And then Bean's half brother, Prince Derek, who is perhaps my least favorite character. Really? Yeah, he doesn't Aside do much. Aside from Dagmar, really gets to grind at my gears because she just like won't mm-hmm. freaking leave <laughs> for me. Like, it's just, uh, <laughs> like I'm done. Yeah, yeah, Prince Derek to me just really, I don't uh, He's, up uh, season three, he has some moments, but, like, yeah, he does nothing.
0: I find him a little dull at the moment. Uh, I find him yeah. kind of
1: annoying. Like annoying yeah. and
2: dull. But well, I think Alex- he's just meant to be, like, a 13-year-old boring boy, you know? Like, there's nothing really yeah. redeeming about him, but he's not... He's yeah, kind of a dumb kid. Yeah, exactly. And I think towards season three, what's interesting is that, like, kind of, like, with boys at that, you know, at age 13, 14, where you can see that they might become, perhaps good people or maybe not but like there is that moment (laughs) in between where you're like maybe they're going to turn this way or that way and I I thought Mm -hmm. that was quite interesting he's not my least favorite I think
0: that more for me as well. It's like just better yeah. <laughs> But yeah and, yeah, and Una even has, Una has some good funny moments. And I actually, mm-hmm. she's actually one of the characters that I liked in the pilot that I, I think it's the pilot or maybe it's episode two, that there's this very small bit where, so this is uh, when Tina, Tia Bini is about to be thrust into her arranged marriage, which she is not particularly thrilled with. Mm-hmm. And her stepmother comes to give her the sex talk and she starts talking <laughs> about tentacles. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, that was uh, deeply involved in her wedding night. Um, yeah,
1: I think that's yeah. the first episode, because the first episode is like an hour, or 50 minutes. It's longer than the, the other, other 25 odd minute episodes. Yeah, no, Una, Una Rocks. I like Una. Yeah, character-wise. And, like, even Lucy and Elfo took a while to grow on me. Like, at first, I was really like, I like the idea of Lucy, but I'm not sold on Lucy. But by, I think, like, episode three, Lucy started to get to me. And by the end of season three, Lucy... They all start to grow a lot, which is really great in a series like this because, you know, sometimes you watch sitcoms cartoon or you know live action and characters don't develop like they don't learn from their mistakes yeah. kind of like i don't know like spongebob maybe you know it's not like the best example but like they just stay the same and it's just yeah but in this they definitely do grow and like change yeah. and sometimes in unexpected ways which mm. is nice because the show does play with a lot of expected tropes and images mm. and storylines with like what high fantasy is
0: right and lucy and i I found lucy at least entertaining right away but so lucy is an actual demon who is sent to her by some thus far at the end of season one still rather mysterious people we Mm -hmm. uh do not yet quite know who they are i uh i'm sure they'll get revealed at some point but Mm -hmm. they have some evil plot involving her there's also something about destiny that her mother talks about toward the end which I'm assuming is probably all related but I at this point do not know exactly what's going on there
2: to be fair it doesn't get it gets a bit clearer (laughs) but it gets more confusing at the same time
1: okay yeah by the end of season three you've got like, a destiny, a curse, another, like, weird random prophecy, and then, like, everything else that's going on, it gets...
0: Which is very high fantasy, but... Yeah. <laughs> and
1: so you're like, oh, are they all gonna end up, like, merging into this, like, one epic thing, or are they all still gonna have, like, separate repercussions? But in preparing for today, I was doing, like, lots of reading, especially on Screen Rant. Screen Rant has some really good little mm. articles that help me kind of refresh... As well as an article on The New Yorker. And
2: oh I read that.
1: Apparently, it's good, right? yeah, it was a really good review. Apparently, Matt Gronig has like an ultimate plan for this show. Mm-hmm. So unlike Futurama okay. or The Simpsons, right? Where they're just uh, they just happen and you know respond yeah. to the world. This he apparently has like it's all a puzzle that's working together. And according okay. to him, from the very first moments in the first episode there are major hints to where the show is going. So Maybe. I'm kind of, and like he said, there's little Easter eggs and puzzle pieces throughout. So mm. I'm really curious about that because that is exciting. Yeah. And I hope that it's not going to be like a...
2: Yeah, if it falls flat, it's going to be really like disappointing. Right.
1: <laughs> but it is encouraging. Now I'm expecting there. some
0: really grand reveal. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'll ever be as disappointed as the end of Game of Thrones. Like I feel so, yeah, any yeah. sort of like expectation I'll ever have will never hopefully make me as frustrated, angry, mad, upset, jaw dropped. What the fuck? Oh, sorry. Can we cut you? I'm so sorry. Absolutely. Okay. And
0: absolutely. And <laughs> Yes. Uh, cursing is fine. I have an explicit tag and I also have intense feelings of rage about the last <laughs> season of Game of Thrones.
1: Like it still makes me mad. I'm sorry to bring it up, but like I'm just Matt Groenig saying this. I'm like, oh yeah, I hope it doesn't fall flat, but it would be, it would take almost insurmountable human strength to surpass my upset.
0: I trust Matt Groening that at least he won't do something that feels like a fundamental betrayal of most of his characters at his yes. ending, which is how I felt about the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs>
2: yes, See, you know, this is really interesting for me because I haven't watched Game of Thrones. Oh. And so, <laughs> but it's yeah. one of those things where like, you just get people together and if they start talking about this, they all often feel the same way. There's <laughs> this like intense, like emotion.
1: <laughs> it was so good until the last season. And you just hold this hope in the last season of like, something's happening. And you're like, shocker. And other things are like, mm, I don't know how I feel, but you still have three episodes. You still have two episodes. All right, it's the finale you can still fix this
0: nope. <laughs> no you can't and it just or you could make the dumbest possible set of decisions yeah oh dear. You can't <laughs> do that. and it's
1: just like so disappointing because if you look at the trajectory of the show just how strong it was for so long and then they just yes. yeah, I feel out.
2: like I just need to get over because I, I think I tried to watch the first episode and there's like like quite a lot of like
1: well, there's lots
0: of incest. As long as you yeah. know that. Going oh yes, in- we start with the incest fast yeah. and the hyper <laughs> violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think was yeah. there a,
2: a rape scene at the beginning of first? I think it must have been something like that. And I was just like, I don't know if I can stomach this. And I think I just was like, no, this may this may not be for me. But I think if I get over that, I'll like watch yeah, it. Highlight is like- already
0: a lot. And one of the things I will say that, with the exception of the final season and a couple of other things throughout, I do think Game of Thrones has some interesting things happening in terms of female characters as does this show segue yes <laughs> um, because Bean is a very interesting character in that she is very clearly an explicit response to a lot of uh, traditional representations of the medieval princess mm-hmm, that yeah. very much instead of being a damsel she is uh well she's a sort of like aggressive depressed alcoholic Yeah but also very capable. We our first our the first time we see her, she basically gets into a bar fight while gambling and does manage, you know, get out and fully rescue herself. Mm-hmm. So it, she's uh she's far from perfect. She's a very she she's a very she's a person who really, really needs to go see a therapist. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we yes.
1: all do. But yeah. Oh yes.
0: But she is somebody who is, uh, in some ways, very capable. She's trying to find her place in the world there are, and she's struggling with that and what exactly she is good at. But she does have uh, some practical skills which allow her to at least to get out of the scrapes that she gets herself into.
1: Yeah, definitely. Being as, and as she grows, becomes much more compelling because she starts off a little bit as, like, an anti-heroine in a way. Yeah. And maybe... She's read that way because she does get into these, you know, like avoidable situations because mm-hmm. of her drinking and bad decision making. But yeah, as you yes. scrappy and can get her way out of it. And she always kind of maintains that throughout the series. She continues to mm-hmm. make frequently questionable decisions, but also making yes. the best of those decisions like and showing resourcefulness in them. But you you grow to like respect and root for being and like being a lot more.
0: Mm. Um, yes. she's not
1: as like angsty or I mean she carries her she she understands where her angst is coming from a lot more as the series progresses. And of course, in the first few episodes, you're, you're establishing the world. And sometimes that's hard to you
3: know. Yeah.
1: Sometimes people hit it right out of the park. Like from the get-go, there's just something where you're like, I'm on this character's side. And at least for myself with her, I was like, I hear you. You don't want to get married because patriarchy and they're telling you what to do and you're not ready. I get that. But there were also things where I was like, I don't know if I'm on your side on other things though. But by the end of the season, I was like, you go, Bean, you do what you need to do. Bring Lucy, bring Elfo.
0: And it is actually those relationships, I think that help a lot with- humanizing her isn't exactly the right word but making her more sympathetic uh, is really establishing those relationships and then also therefore being able to emphasize her loyalty to Lucy and Elfo Mm -hmm. as a a positive quality that she has because you know if you have an anti-hero or somebody who's at least deeply flawed that's fine but if you want us to root for them they ideally need to actually have some positive qualities as well. Right. And uh, yeah, getting into that, and lo- getting that loyalty is really something that I think uh, rounds out her character a lot more and makes her somebody who we can care about.
1: Agreed. Yeah. And you learn throughout the series and you know, it is seen with her loyalty, but she does care about people and that does grow yeah. more. Even if she does things that are very narrow sighted at times, she's never acting with like, intent malicious intentions like
0: right she's just
2: a bit selfish sometimes i guess that's more yeah
1: yeah or just yeah like very narrow minded like thinking she's doing something that's good and not realizing that it's yeah Yeah. self-serving and then gonna hurt a bunch of people whereas like lucy for example i mean he's a demon so when he does things yeah he knows that they're gonna be bad for other people because he's like "Ah, i'm a demon here we go and then alpha is just kind of clueless um, but you
2: see, that I, I find yeah. it also quite interesting because from the first episode, you've got like this, the fact that he's just not positive enough to be from right. his
0: like home He doesn't country. like candy enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, then, and then he come, like he gets in the setting where like, it's this classic, I don't know. I mean, I've definitely felt this in my life where you're like, you don't like one environment, but you're not enough for the other And so then you have this thing where, like, this identity crisis that kind of happens without you actually saying anything, Mm
0: -hmm. or like, in this yeah, this indication that we get at the end of the fact that he is part elf and part something else, not yet announced is, I think, a really interesting take on that in that it is, uh, I mean, it is something that can sometimes be experienced that you, uh, you know, come from two different backgrounds and uh, have ways in which you are not able to feel fully at home in either of those worlds.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and I do think that that part of his storyline's great. I guess the first season, it makes sense, like his naivete and childish antics at times, because, you know, he is just... He mean he grew up in Elfwood. Elf. I mean, and the mean the, the introduction of Elfwood and Elfo, I did think was brilliant because it's like yeah, Keebler elves and like candy and gumdrops and like they're singing and then it just and they're like going down a construction line of, for like lollipops or something and then you get to Elfo and he's like a more muted color than them and his face is just zero percent amused
0: and, and I good. wrote down. Yeah, and I wrote down one of his opening lines, which is "singing while you work's not happiness; it's mental illness." <laughs> <laughs> I I could remember, which is great. That, I mean, though. yeah, which is, is just pretending that you're happy when you're actually not, and acting like you, uh, you know, love and enjoy everything, but it's mm-hmm. really, you know, but when it's when that's not true, is it actually isn't entirely mentally healthy? Yeah, yeah. it's true.
1: And then, as you were saying, we get the inverse where when he leaves, he's, like, the tralala la la happy one, even though he's not necessarily happy. like that. But yeah. then compared to, like, a Lucy and a Bean, he yeah. seems very, like, gumdrops and rainbows and,
2: like, yeah. yeah. I think it's quite interesting, though, because, like, in, in further seasons, he kind of remains, like, his character develops in other ways, but that kind of aspect of him just stays the same. And, like, it mm. kind of, it's quite interest. I find that interesting because I think that, like, he could have been developed in, like, a way to morph more with how Bean and mm-hmm. Lucy act but it's kind of, I, I think it's got something quite charming to the fact that he kind of stays
0: a bit at times irritating for how positive and naive he is and yes. it adds something to the overall group dynamic I think
1: definitely mm-hmm. one like it also kind of defies the expectation whereas like as you become more knowledgeable of the world and the more that you experience the more cynical and therefore dour you like inevitably have to become and i mean elfo has moments where he's like I mean, he mm. stops taking people's shit by the end of season 3 and like standing up for himself okay. but he does for the most part still have like his happy kind of go lucky trying to be positive and that is nice that's like oh you don't have to become a curmudgeon or you know, deeply cynical or whatnot. Like, you don't have to lose that positive aspect of yourself. Yeah. And yeah. that's really nice. Like when you think about it, sometimes in your, I think this is one of those shows where sometimes in watching it, you're just kind of in the story and maybe you're like, oh, it's not as strongly written as like a Futurama or something mm-hmm. like that. But especially season three, which a big arc of season three talks about mental health and mental illness Mm. when you take it kind of as a commentary on that and think about it in more broad strokes outside it's it actually is doing something really powerful and like mm-hmm. just talking about Elfo right now it's like oh yeah that is actually quite remarkable that they do this with this character yeah. yeah yeah
0: the one thing that I don't 100% love about the Elfo character is this mostly unrequited uh, crush on Bean that we see from very early you know and it's very much the man trying to get with a woman who is clearly yeah. not interested in him and a little bit of the like I'll keep hanging out with her as friends and maybe eventually I'll wear her down in ways that are deeply problematic and is like mm-hmm. the one thing that doesn't age particularly well from Futurama which also has that dynamic with the with the character with Fry and Leela
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it's often not there's something questionable about that so that's the the one element of that relationship that I don't particularly like and I am kind of hoping goes away but we'll see yeah the I should say the pining best
1: friend thing they do outgrow it Um, that's good or alpha outgrows it I mean beans of course the kind of she doesn't un- realize what's happening half time with that because right. she's in her own bean yeah. land but I, lo- but yeah, I, no, they,
2: uh, I mean it, I because I watched it kind of like all in basically one installment and yeah. it does it that storyline does last it does stop eventually but mm-hmm. yeah right I hadn't thought of it in that because it's true it's something that is kind of ingrained in how society is right so like it's not something that I thought of, yeah but it's true that it's kind of it's not that great it doesn't age well and, Possibly right. really exists in this context either
0: and especially because it's often the slightly pathetic man with the sort of more capable or badass woman and this undermines that a little bit and that being is also kind of a screw-up but uh, it it does still have some some elements of that mm. which uh, is is not is a very common trope and is not the greatest one from a gender perspective
1: yeah agreed yeah and just like the expectation also if you have a trio of people There's always kind of in the beginning going to be that sexual attraction, you know, usually it's uh, one way or another. And it's just kind of like, no, you can have friendships where that just doesn't exist, but still be as close as these people and get into the shenanigans. Yeah, Um, So it's also like that aspect of the trope. So it's like a double negative, I think, because the gender thing and then also just like what like this doesn't have to be here. It's not necessarily gonna uh, benefit, bring anything, so. But yeah, Elfo grows, Lucy grows, Bean grows. Everyone grows, except for Dagmar. Dagmar just stays the same. So then she feels like she gets worse because everyone else is
0: getting better. Right, right. And at the moment- yeah. And at the moment that I'm at now, she's just this, I mean, she's just a villain and we don't know exactly what her motives are, but they'll, you know, what we learn about her, first of all, you know, we, we'll be we see her, as I said before, you know, kill everybody or at least uh, mm-hmm. temporarily turn everyone to stone, which is still not great. We, uh, so we see that we also learn that the way she got poisoned in the first place it was her attempting to poison Zog and then being switched the glasses around
3: mm-hmm. so
0: uh, we uh we know there's like something pretty long-standing going on there in terms of her villainy but uh, as at the point where I'm at do not yet know any real details about what's happening there
1: and that was, that reveal was, I think, done really well because Bean remembers this last moment with her mom and the wine glasses and Zog outside and coming in and then her mother mysteriously turning to stone, and you know, and Dagmar yeah. saying, Bean, and that traumatizing Bean, you know, of like course. throughout her life. And then you get Dagmar's perspective when she's reawoken, I guess, or like distoned. You see like what actually happened, And I think that that, at least for the audience, is always, especially in an animated feature, it's nice when you see those kind of feels done, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, no, what you thought was true is not true. I mean, you have it in live action, too. But I just, because animation is animated, I just feel like you don't get that that often. And I think Mm -hmm. it was well done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the reveal I actually thought was well done because we have we have this sort of Chekhov's crystal ball that starts out as just this kind of light joke. It then ends up being used more fully in uh, this episode, this kind of odd episode where a giantess is mm. brought in because she is uh, basically meets the description of the mate of Elfo's made up girlfriend. yeah. <laughs> And uh, initially, you know, just seems to be kind of grunting. And then it turns out that's because a horse is stuck in her throat and she is actually a grad student, which I was very (laughs) amused by. Uh, Yeah,
2: Yeah. I I definitely felt like a bit I could relate a little bit, you know, in that kind of like craze.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that magic ball orb continues to be to, like, reappear throughout the series and right. be, like, a prophecy orb
0: yeah. in a so way, like,
1: yeah. loosely. Like, it it reveals things in often unintended ways. Yeah. And has some moments, if you pay attention, like, if you read the trivia on IMDb, the orb has some moments where uh, Futurama characters do appear in one scene hmm. with it. So, for you, maybe interesting. I think it's it confusing, yeah. too, when it happens. It's really quick,
0: but Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Cause we, we get a lot, you know, cause at first it all, seems like a magic eight ball basically. Like sometimes <laughs> it'll say yes. Sometimes it'll say no. At some point it just says the danger is near. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then uh, after Tess gets it as an eye and sees a bunch of things, but then after she brings it back, that's when uh, Lucy is able to use it to reveal a lot of the, uh, the past and uh, find out what really happened with Dagmar.
1: Yeah. Which is great. And yeah, I just, I love when Tess brings it back and she's like, I don't want to see this stuff anymore. And like pops it out and she's just like, <laughs> here, take it. I don't want it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Especially because it's mostly just like all of these people being awful yeah. that she can read their minds essentially. And she's like, I, I I would rather not have an eye than or have one eye than have to deal with this, which yeah. is fair. So fair. Yeah. It
2: is kind of like a visual aid to like the thing of like, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say it kind of like if you don't want it to like take the negativity away
0: right oh the other thing I was going to say about Bean is that she never quite comes off as malicious despite the fact that she has like an intense body count
1: yeah agreed and it's and like, oopsie daisy,
0: body count. <laughs> like, oh no, I didn't right. do that. <laughs> and there's, she throws this party while her father is away and Vikings invade the castle. And she ends up ultimately managing to defeat them and sends them through this trap door that her father has, which throws people into the sea. It's unclear as to whether that always means you die, but it certainly does mean you die if it's low tide. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, two things on that. So the trapdoor
1: is used a lot in the later seasons. Yes. And so Oh, okay. Do, I was gonna say it's already
0: used a lot. Okay.
1: So people do like return from the 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 waters, or they die. Mm. Yeah, it can go either way, and you never really know. But um, second thing is, so that episode is called Castle Party Massacre, which is a type. Ti- so all the titles of the episodes are like plays on books, movies. Oh, like yeah. That. And Castle Party Massacre is a reference to Slumber Party Massacre, one of my all-time right. favorite. B slasher films. It's really good. It's about an escaped menstrual institute guy who tries to massacre the basketball team at this high school of girls mm. with a drill. There's mm. like no motive, yeah. and no. it's, it's mm. I don't know. I it's absurd and it's so fun and just like ridiculous. <laughs>
0: So oh, sorry, a little fun fact from my own <laughs> research. I was like, oh, good title. <laughs> That's also one of the best like cuts to the title card because we have the uh, King Zog is about to go away. And uh, he says as he's leaving, something like, those are those are some good people. And then we had the smash cut to title card castle party massacre. You're And you're like, oh no, never mind. <laughs>
2: But it's true, though, that like yeah. it's, in, it's it's like kind of going back to what you were saying, it's kind of interesting that she's seen as a good character when actually like like someone who's despite her flaws, like her flaws don't seem to lead to like the fact that she just kills a lot of people throughout the show. And it seems right. like that yeah. her deaths are like kind of motivated, but not really oftentimes. And they, if they are motivated, isn't that like somewhat worse? I don't know.
0: Right. And we do see a hesitancy to kill people who she thinks don't deserve it and I think it's really interesting there's this episode where she is uh, temporarily working as an executioner
2: mm-hmm. and is supposed
0: to execute this witch who she feels uncomfortable executing clearly because she she doesn't see I mean she seems like she doesn't necessarily have the mental capacity to understand her crimes and then we find out of course that she didn't actually commit any crimes the crimes were all committed by the tormented German siblings Hansel and Gretel
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that episode is uh wild. That one has a fun title too. That one's called Faster Princess Kill Kill after <laughs> Faster Pricy <Princess> Cat. <laughs> go, go. Well, yeah, and then that episode, Bean was also like, I feel like she has something to say and just doesn't know how to mm-hmm. say it. And then, of course, yeah, we get to that. Yeah, that was a fun episode with Elfo talking about him being like naive, where he's like,
0: okay, I'll get in this pan full of butter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh gosh you little idiot um, and he jumps
0: in the pan and Hansel and Gretel are looking at each other and they're like he couldn't make this easier if he was spreading butter on himself and then he <laughs> promptly starts spreading <laughs> butter on himself
1: he's like this feels and smells good <laughs>
0: it's like I don't want to stick in the pan
1: yeah yeah there are a lot that is one thing I'll give this show is even if some of the jokes fall flat there are sometimes just truly absurd little like nuggets like that that really are fun yeah it also has really good little like tidbits in the background sometimes too Mm -hmm. that are quite witty if you're paying attention I can't yeah like like
0: if you if, I was just going to say, if you read the signage, yeah. the signage is uh, very, very solid. I, uh, I'm trying, I wrote down a couple of examples. I know I definitely missed things here and there, but uh, even just like, just like dumb puns sometimes, like mm-hmm. in one of the early episodes, we see Royal Wigsmith and then it says hair, H-A-I-R to the throne. But, you know, <laughs> I'll be, I, I laughed at that dumb pun.
1: Yeah. I can't think of, I didn't write down any. I just keep thinking of the one from Shrek that made me laugh where it's a parking lot and it's called Lance a lot <laughs> right? <laughs> but there are ju- puns like in this show on that caliber of yeah mm-hmm.
0: uh, yeah the nunnery also has uh a uh, it's uh, our lady of unlimited chastity and below that it says live crude girls <laughs> it's also pretty good
1: that's a really good one. It's like very multi-layered as well.
0: Right. So yes, yeah, so if you pay attention to little things, yeah, like the signage and all of that in the background, then you get a lot of interesting uh, little extra details.
1: Yes. And some of them are like medieval related, like more direct yeah. medieval. And then others are kind of in your face. Like you have, is it the Plague Watch? The Plague?
2: The yes. G- oh which- my God, that episode. That kind of scarred me.
1: <laughs> are you thinking about the one in the elf town in the city. So that's in yeah. season two or three. We haven't, oh, we okay. haven't gotten to that yet. But and yeah. the first a, few, The plague
0: pit is already a lot, but-
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, that could be considered either a nod to Monty Python and the Holy Grail right. with the plague, you know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead, as well as just the idea of the plague being basically in all the middle ages when people think about it, even though- right. Not
0: (laughs) right, that is a good lead in to the vera et falso section where we talk about what they got right and wrong. And this is obviously a fantasy and filled with many, many deliberate anachronisms. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are obviously, you know, a number of things that I'm not necessarily going to touch on, but a couple of things that I thought were particularly interesting that I wanted to mention. And yeah, the first one is actually the plague that. Mm -hmm it is very much part of this sense that the plague is just a constant in the Middle Ages,
3: mm-hmm.
0: including the fact that nobody, we, well, we, so we have the guy going around uh, with his, you know, Monty Python ask to bring out your dead cart. But other than that, we don't have a sense of the plague having changed people's lives in a fundamental way. Right. Whereas when you read, uh, you know, Boccaccio's account of the plague at the beginning of the Decameron, or if you read City's Plague Regulations, It's pretty clear that this was very different from the ordinary illnesses that people experienced in the Middle Ages, you know, because it was both so contagious and so deadly, Mm -hmm. that in the same way as COVID has fundamentally changed the way our everyday lives look now, that really seems to have also been true during the periods and, you know, during the moments in which the Black Death was raging in that, of course, initial 1348 outbreak, as well as on and off in these kind of more localized uh, uh, and briefer outbreaks that you have at various points after that in the, th- in the 14th and 15th centuries. And yeah, but, and that nobody really seems to be doing anything different because there's plague. Yes, yeah, just yeah. kind
1: of seems to be there because it belongs in a medieval or medievalism show. Like, oh, it takes place right. this time. We have to have a plague cart at some point. Is it oddball? Someone wears a mask that looks like the plague doctor mask, which actually didn't which exist in the middle ages. That's Right, like which is
0: 17th century. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's like, oh, you have to have one of those. But yeah, like in regards to the actual placement of it, is very different, right?
0: So, yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's very common. This kind of everything in the Middle Ages took place at the same time. I and mean, my one of my big pet peeves is that there are multiple movies where you have people returning from the Crusade, and all of a sudden it's a Black Death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and
3: you're
0: despite like, despite the oh. fact that yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the last Crusade to Jerusalem is a century, I think, if I'm remembering <laughs> all of my dates offhand correctly, is a century before the Black Death, and yet. Yeah, it's
1: occurring after. Yeah,
0: right. It's like this immediately it, after. Yeah,
2: I don't. I don't know though. With like, because obviously this is kind of like a fantasy land. Whether because time in the in the whole series, it just doesn't seem to time seems to either go really quickly or really slowly right. or just kind of stagnant. I don't know right. if that's we're just yeah. saying
0: yeah. That, yeah
1: The show's like riffing on yeah yeah, yeah. So it's more than anything like right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a plague
0: gag more than anything else. Yeah, I agreed.
1: And like, you haven't gotten to it yet, but there's a place called Steamland that's like an alternate world Mm -hmm. um, that Bean goes to, I think, fairly early on. Oh no, towards the end of season two. And that's like a riff on everything that's like steampunk and Metropolis. Right. And so there, it's Mm -hmm. the same thing where it's kind of like these gags on, well, what do you think of as like steampunk and the visuals and Mm -hmm. tropes of that? So... They're definitely playing in these like big, broad strokes with those kind of things that you expect. So, didn't yeah. mean to derail your
0: list. No, but- of course. <laughs> um, and I will say, I will give a shout out to the Plague Pit. <laughs> in that uh, this has some connection to reality. And uh, so I'm going to quote from the Decameron that Boccaccio informs us, when all the graves were full, huge trenches were excavated in the churchyards uh, into which new arrivals were placed in their hundreds, stowed tier upon tier like ship's cargo, each layer of corpses being covered with a thin layer of soil until the trench was filled to the top. And there's another version of this which also compares it to lasagna, which is an image that will never leave my brain.
2: Oh my God is kind of disgusting isn't it yeah wow yeah
0: but yeah so <laughs> these these plague pits are real things uh, with the exception being that of course in the real medieval world they uh, did not burn the bodies that being religiously questionable
3: right
0: mm. but uh i'll given that religion is certainly yeah. not medieval christianity in this universe i'll give them that one <laughs>
1: Yeah. one well, the thing i find really interesting about like pits of the dead is that Mm -hmm. yes like plague pits are perhaps the most famous but like the yellow fever especially in the south in the 19th century they had plague pits they had bodies stacking up on the streets Mm -hmm. um like my undergraduate research was about new orleans but that's just never kind of considered or something that like exists as a trope which is just because it was equally as traumatic and more recently but yeah the plague pits are one of those things that like nope it's medieval. Again, Elo and I talk about this a lot in our part, cat podcast, yeah. where it's like, it's weird, it's bizarre, or it seems cruel or inhumane or doesn't make sense. There go. It's from the Middle Ages, and that's where it lives. Right.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and it's like, no, that happened about a hundred years ago, maybe less. So. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you know, similarly, you know, the displacement of wish burning into the middle ages
3: mm-hmm.
1: that,
0: uh, yeah, this is of course very common. This assumption that, well, if something was bad, then it was medieval and now we're mm-hmm. much better. <laughs> right.
1: And this show does kind of, it is one thing I respect about it being like a medieval show, but a lot of the characters flaws are ones that still exist today. And it's like, right. And it, and it comments on that in a very subtle way. Like, again, if you think about it, you're like, oh yes, this is doing a really good job but it's not like super didactic in it, but it's like, oh yeah, you can place it in the middle ages because it feels more distant, but they're talking about issues like mental health or I don't know, what's another one that is big, hello, in the
0: series. Alcoholism.
1: Alcoholism, there you go. Parental (laughs) issues, daddy issues, Mm -hmm. right? All of that are big things in sexism. Yeah. are big issues today, but for some reason the medieval analog makes it seem
0: more palatable. Antiquated yeah mm-hmm. and yeah there's there's something that i kind of like about that and uh I, well and i mean and that's kind of the true in in futurama as well that there's some amount of uh, he goes to the future and the future is supposed to be fun and better and then it isn't <laughs> uh but it, so it is this uh, sense kind of of uh, everybody sort of has the same problems no matter when you are yeah. and uh, taking disenchantment as part of that mindset i think is really interesting and is uh, subtly something that at least can function I don't know if entirely intentionally or not as Mm -hmm. a commentary on the presentation of the middle ages as being this uniquely terrible moment to be alive yeah that we often see in media
2: yeah it's interesting I found it quite interesting as well like a lot of like the things that you see aside from like being To a certain extent, relatable. They also can be active commentaries of like today, in in a way or another, Mm -hmm. whether like relate, like whether directly or indirectly.
0: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I mean the you know the idea of having an absent father, and this is then essentially like you as a teen are turning to drugs and alcohol, and you know I mean this is this is a real problem.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. and it appears yeah. All sorts of media.
0: How did you find like?
2: Because obviously, you know, things like cleanliness may not be something that the show touches upon in any way. And like cleanliness in the Middle Ages, I don't know why it's just come to mind. But like, is that something that your brain went to when you were watching this?
0: Not this in particular, but thinking about it now, it is. Uh, it is interesting in that it actually doesn't do as much of the thing that you sometimes see in live action films where it's like did they literally just make all the actors like put dirt on their faces Mm. um and so there is this like like, there's this level of filth that you have on human bodies at random and movies set in the middle ages and this show actually didn't seem like it did that as much yeah that people look sort of normal yeah yeah that's true
1: and actually if you pay attention to like the the background people they actually do a pretty good job of diversifying the
0: yes they do yeah,
1: which, yeah, which i liked is maybe not something that you're necessarily paying like attention to but if you're aware of it you're like oh yeah they're not all just yeah. whatever white is in a high fantasy like this but yeah it's like oh if you look at stills it's like a nice diverse yeah uh, group that yeah are not always dirty i'm just trying to because i think there was like one episode where they did make a joke about their clothes but I can't recall where I had wrote down that note, but it was meant as a joke, not as mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a fact right. of, of that. And then in a later episode, the one that Ella was kind of thinking of
2: earlier. There's a lot more about the play. There's,
1: well, there's a mm-hmm. lot more also about just kind of like contamination of water, Mm-hmm. And how that impacts right. communities
0: and like oh and we see a little of that since that's the uh the uh water that her father uh drinks and that's why he has to leave. He has to go to a spa to uh to recover after he's drinking and that's how she gets rid of the Vikings, also, is that she has oh, them yeah. drink this uh this water. That's I right. Yeah.
2: The, the, yeah. The guy from the spa kind of funny, just like you think you're gonna you're here for a good time, but actually I'm just gonna be like kind of miserable.
0: <laughs> oh, right. but yeah. But actually I like that. So it has this water contamination, but it actually makes clear that like, it's unusually contaminated, right. That people mm. notice and it is bad as opposed yeah. to there's a, there is often this just kind of general assumption that for example, that people in the middle ages were just constantly eating rotten meat and that that's why they yet used spices was to cover the taste of rotten meat. And yeah. you know, this is something else that is a, that is a myth in particular because you can tell if meat is rotten, even if you pour a ton of spices on it. Yeah. right like one thing that like
2: my school told me when I was like in sixteen, seventeen, was that in the middle ages you'd drink wine because the water was often contaminated right. and that just doesn't seem quite right
0: <laughs> right especially because and then they say well but then you would water down the wine I'm like but but then yeah what that is the, the benefit problem? of that
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right right
1: <laughs> Yeah, I heard the same thing. And I had someone asked like, oh, well, if you put water in the wine, what's the purpose? But the alcohol cleans the water. I heard that was one that I heard. So I was like, it was still okay," But again, that's just people weaving tales and stories about the medieval when they don't know anything.
0: Right. I mean, they do have wells and the expectation is that the water that comes out of the wells is supposed to be drinkable.
1: Mm hmm. And that is, like a, again, a big, that is like an arc of one of the episodes later on. doesn't affect Bean and her population directly. It impacts right. arguably a, like, minority group mm-hmm. <laughs> in the series. But it does yeah. also, with that, bring up questions about the minority group and how they're being treated as well as, like, mm-hmm. health and sanitation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting and also connects to modern. Yeah. Issues. Actually,
1: I just remembered the, like, antidote. I don't remember what episode it is, but the the cleanliness joke. Maybe you'll remember what episode it is, LO. But each year they have one day where they clean their clothes and take yes. a shower. Yeah, it's the same one. It's the same it, one. Well, yeah, but like, I think, is it that mm. same episode? As, yeah, 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 as, yeah. Okay. And they're like, one day a year, we're going to get clean. And it's, like, so over the top, poking fun at this idea that they're all filthy because, yeah, they look clean when you see them yeah. around unless they're meant to look like gross gutter drunk right like mm-hmm. um, yeah but that's it is funny when you get to it because it's so in your face about it and you're like oh you're acknowledging this trope that's just not true
0: <laughs> right <laughs> and that's actually kind of interesting too with the marriage alliance issue mm-hmm. uh, because this is, I mean, this is something else that I feel like you see a lot and you do see that's here too of the idea that Everybody is deeply shocked by the idea of having to have an arranged marriage, despite the fact that that would obviously be the norm for anyone of the upper classes and even a lot of people of lower social strata as well, that you would Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. get to choose a partner based on your personal romantic feelings for them. You do have that trope here as well, and that's how we get started. But Mm -hmm. I also think that's combined with some really interesting things about the function of marriage alliances that's actually kind of weirdly accurate. Like I really liked the joke that on the cake they make it the uh, the two kings kissing one another instead of either the bride or the groom. Yeah, that was <laughs> a good one, yeah. <laughs> like I really like that as a visual representation of the fact that that's actually what this marriage is about. It is about the alliance. It's not about either of these two human people mm-hmm. uh, or well, eventually maybe pig person, <laughs> but- Yeah, I mean, like, so much happens (laughs)
1: with that because we also, we get the, like, very obvious Game of Thrones reference where they have the throne of swords that Beans, groom to be...
0: Yeah, the original fiancé.
1: is accidentally pushed onto and, like, pierced in the head. And then they're like, well, now you gotta marry Merkimer. (laughs) And it's just like... uh... And then, of course, the other brother hasn't died yet and they just, like, let
2: him...
0: Just
2: hang there for he, like doesn't, he doesn't die
0: until the end of the season oh my yeah. god yeah <laughs> like we didn't uh, realize he's gonna live on this chair technically for like months yeah but i don't really
2: understand like how like i know that this is fiction i realize it's just right. kind of my mind is just like how is this possible like how how are you would justify this like things like you know anyway well,
0: i know
1: that's, that's the point is it's like virtually impossible i yeah. think they show him at one point like it. eating dirt like like licking his tongue and eating the dirt
0: And Futurama also has a lot of that kind of extreme violence that it does not make sense that anybody would survive this. Yeah,
1: it's just like the shock factor and to get the joke that they're like, well, you got to marry Merkimer now. And she's like, I don't want to. And then, you know, the plot kind of goes from there because they're like, let's go on a tour of Mermaid Island. And you get the whole discovering that there's Mermaid Island and the Island of the Walruses and the play (laughs) on who makes what sound. And Mercomer, you know, going to the Isle of the Walruses and they just leave him there and they think that he's going to die and then does not and does some uh, naughty things with the walruses.
0: Apparently. Yeah. do you want to marry a man who's had sex with 30 walruses? Yeah. Okay, why not? That's the
1: only kind of man I want to marry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Clearly. Then, yeah, Goals. I, somehow, I, like, I know that it's Elfo's semi-elf blood that mixes with the pig's blood that turns the Merkimer into a pig, but it like also the he enters the pig's body and the pig enters his body, and it's this really bizarre.
0: Yes, I pig. yeah, I don't know if that's ever going to come back, but we very briefly see the pig turn into human Merkimer, but we in this season do not see that individual again.
1: He does reappear. Okay, but it's not until season three. Okay but when he does it leads to one of my it's favorite stories in the entire series.
0: Okay.
1: Hopefully you enjoy it as much as I did cuz I was like <laughs> okay. very satisfied with where yeah. that went.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say the other thing that I actually like is this replacement brother bit, because of course that is something that could happen in Mm -hmm. medieval marriage alliances. And uh, I brought in just an example for fun, which is, uh, so in 1319, Leonore of Castile married Jaume of Aragon, the son Mm -hmm. of King Jaume II. And the groom, like right, I think they got through the marriage, but then immediately after the groom... Fled, renounced his right to the throne, and became like took vows and became a hospitaller.
2: Okay, Uh-oh.
0: and that was apparently just his deal. Is that he was just like, no, I want to like be celibate and like be some kind of monk, and like I'll take the fight, and like I guess I'll take this one, which is like a fighting one at least. But that uh, he's like, no, I just don't want to do any of this. And uh it's you know more complicated in this case. She just ends up basically like sitting around for like a decade until she ends up eventually but she does end up eventually marrying the other brother and uh, Alpha who becomes King Alphonse the Fourth and uh mm-hmm. being his queen.
1: I mean Henry the Eighth's first wife.
0: That yeah, and- Catherine of Aragon was married into his yeah. brother.
1: And then yeah, his brother died. And yeah, it happens yeah. quite a Didn't the same thing happen with oh no, I'm not gonna Matilda didn't she have like marry a sibling of somebody oh shoot i don't remember
0: but there are de- yeah i don't remember yeah. that one offhand but there there I are definitely hear. i
1: mean there are a number of examples of this mm. it happens enough to where it, like the joke has merit it's not like oh it's just one time it's like no yeah they married the siblings married the woman ended up marrying the brother i don't know how like, often in uh, the
2: Medici story isn't there like quite a lot of that Right, and I
0: think there's also and the other I, I can't think of a, of another example offhand, but it is I think also especially not uncommon that you know because you often have these betrothals that happen when everybody's quite young and mm-hmm. you're not necessarily planning on marrying them actually to each other right away and sometimes in those scenarios somebody dies and then it's just an immediate like right, move yep move on to the next one <laughs>
1: yeah oh no well that fell through but luckily we've got a spare here they come yep <laughs> um. um yeah, no, it's funny. And just, again, like you were saying, such a great just elaboration of the politics between Zog and whatever the King of Brentwood's name is, I can't recall. And just trying to make oh, this I have no idea. work. Um,
0: right. And and that family is also interesting. And it's a bit late, but I think they're supposed to be a Habsburg referent. Uh, I mean, it's a little little Game of thrones too in that they mentioned that the King and Queen are siblings. Oh, yeah. If you look at the um, right.
1: IMDb notes, They're brother cousins because incest. Yeah. So they're brother, sister, husband, wife. And then yeah, it gets all wonky from
0: there. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of I think that's supposed to mostly be a sort of Habsburg joke. Yeah. Definitely something in that, yes. Another kind of commentary thing uh, is that there is this one line that I wanted to note that her father says where uh, he kind of briefly thrusts her into this nunnery and that doesn't go so well. And then he says that you're bad at being a princess and a nun, those are the only girl things I know. And I really liked that as a commentary or at least I was going to take it as a commentary in -hmm. that while those obviously were not the only options available to medieval women, there are a lot of women who, you know, practice trades and do a variety of other things. And there are, you know, women peasants, there are women in towns, et cetera. That mm-hmm. is what you tend to see in films. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's definitely. either a princess or a nun.
1: Right. And, or, and like that's like in films and stuff as well. I mean, sometimes you have like the renegade girl that's tomboy which Bean definitely is, right? She dresses in the male peasant clothes. Yeah.
3: And
1: it's a joke throughout the series. Whenever they put her in a dress, she's like, ugh, dress get me out or they try to do her hair and she goes that's right. nice, and then just undoes it all and yeah very quickly but yeah none or princess there's yeah no space in between even mm. though right. there's a lot in between a lot of yes
0: life. yes and I feel we like... we didn't see a ton of other examples of women in this but we we yeah. do have we do have test the grad student uh yes. and we have bunty her uh her um like chambermaid who also mm-hmm. has seems to hold down some other jobs
1: yes mother is one of them of numerous
0: My children goodness. yes um,
1: una will take on a fun job eventually interesting as well as mm-hmm. cleaning but again she goes into a perhaps more like stereotypical side job but yeah. not at the same time we don't want to spoil it but
2: okay let's you know, say yeah. any more anything more yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give it I, away. Uh, <laughs> I look
0: forward to it and then i had one last thing which is mm-hmm. uh, i have a particular fondness for food history. Uh, actually my uh, PhD advisor uh, is a uh, food historian uh, Paul Friedman who's at Yale and so I made some notes having to do with foods that came up at various points and uh, whether they would have been found in a real medieval context oh I love it when people do this because I never (laughs) know yeah. So, uh, the first, and this is one that actually, uh, is mentioned very early that there's a, uh, this, I think it's when Elfo is like dealing with the candy and they're talking about like other foods that he, that he might want to eat. And mm-hmm. he mentions mustard. And to my initial thought was mustard seems modern, but I was incorrect. Mustard oh. is not modern. There is a uh, first of all, mustard goes back at least to the Romans. There is hey. a Roman mustard re- recipe, yeah, in uh, De Re Coquinaria, um, the, uh, the like the Roman, I think fourth fifth century cookbook. Oh, um, yeah, they have a whole mustard recipe. So I would not in that, have thought it went
1: that far back, I would have right. said maybe like earliest would be like the eleventh century is yeah. like maybe the furthest I thought
2: maybe, but right. No. Roman yeah
0: okay yeah so mustard is Roman you know and, what like
2: would it be yeah. like as a condiment or like as a apparently
0: it, so it was medicinal? supposed to be a glaze for a roasted boar oh well that's okay. something you would have not okay. I've done like yeah. yeah I've done like mustard yeah. braised pork chops like yeah.
1: wow yeah I would have yeah. thought maybe it would have started off honestly with medicinal like a salve or something oh yeah right.
0: Yeah, oh, but true. yeah, no, they have it in this cookbook as something that is definitely like a thing that you eat.
1: Awesome. And
0: yeah, it also uh, it seems to have at some point uh, it definitely did spread to France, uh, and so the uh, the monks of Saint Germain de Play in Paris apparently made mustard. Really? Okay. Yeah.
2: In, in, in what century? Do you know more or less? Uh, starting in, I think, the tenth
0: is so- when we have the earliest record of that monastic mustard making. That's I like incredible. that monastic mustard. Yeah. and we you know all today know Dijon mustard and mm-hmm. apparently the idea of like the city of Dijon being associated with the making of mustard goes back to the 13th century that we have records of like Dijon mustard makers
2: wow, wow. man Much that must spe- be something that they put on like the
0: labels you know to like sell right. it better.
1: yeah yeah now I'm gonna have to pay attention to the label and see
0: if right like Rita says that read mustard or, like, label
1: the little back blurb Yeah, where it's like "Mm, mustard in the countryside, you know, blah, 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 since the
2: 13th century. Right.
0: But yeah, so I was very surprised by that, uh, by the antiquity of mustard. Yes.
2: I would have Um, thought that it kind of, it would have just taken a more like central part of the meal. I'm not sure why I didn't think it would be a condiment, but just like more of a, like a soupy thing. I I don't know if that would be even edible, but like for some reason that that's where my mind went with that.
0: Right. And I thought that was really interesting, too, is that it seems to have for most of its history really been, in fact, a condiment not entirely dissimilar to the way we use mustard mm-hmm. now.
1: Yeah. yeah. I wonder if they also use like mustard seeds for anything else aside from just mustard, like if they used it in grain yeah. or if they used it in like dot because I mean, I know that like French is mustard, the yellow dye, that's like a very probably more mm-hmm. modern thing than a Dijon, like grainy Round mm. mustard yeah but I wonder because aren't the flowers quite yellow and like can be used for like oh milk? maybe yeah.
0: yeah I think yeah. so I think there are definitely other recipes that call for mustard seeds without you know making the mustard paste mm. but yeah I'd be in uh, yeah I'm not sure about other uses as well but yeah but I was very I was very entertained that specifically mustard as a condiment goes back that far yes I agree yeah, me
2: too learn something
0: um, <laughs> yeah I also had thoughts on the lemon crusade Mm. Uh, (laughs) and it is the case that lemons were more popular for cultivation in the Islamic uh, east than in the west but they did exist they just weren't super popular in the Mediterranean uh, and like other parts of the Mediterranean and like Mm -hmm. Italy and parts of the Iberian Peninsula and I I think if he'd wanted a lemon he could have gotten a lemon without a whole crusade
1: yeah there yeah. is a joke later on I don't remember if it's in this season or one of the next ones but uh he does have a lemon in this like almost like reliquary in the kitchen yes and it's, yeah yeah and it's like so hard and I maybe it was the the lemon crusade with that but they're like don't eat it and then of course they're like oh whatever right. he won't miss it
0: <laughs> he's like people lost their lives for that lemon. yeah <laughs> I thought it was quite relatable though because
2: like often you like save or something for like a special occasion then you just never have it.
0: Right. <laughs> but like it's a lemon, wouldn't it have gone bad? Oh, that's yeah, I mean, it's probably <laughs> sort of wrinkled uh, by, by that point, uh, but. Yeah, it's a cartoon. Yeah, I actually don't think eating <laughs> it would have been such yeah. a great idea, but yeah. <laughs> we do have inaccurate mentions of both potatoes and corn, which are new world foods. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I did know that.
0: Yes, but the final food that I wanted to note are lampreys, since they are served a dish of uh, uh, lampreys vivants when they go to uh, Dankmeyer, mm, and yes. they would have been quite, in fact, uh, as you know, members of the upper class. They should have been quite used to lampreys, Lampre- lampreys that were very popular, high-status foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, had they gone to a kingdom and been served lampreys live and seemingly raw. They might indeed have been surprised since the usual method of serving lampreys was indeed to cook them. And fun fact, a one recipe that I found a bunch of examples of that seems to have been a popular way of serving lampreys involves roasting them, but also cooking them in a sauce, which is made of a combination of wine, spices, but also their own blood. Oh,
1: Mm, iron! so yum. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that you yeah lampreys but I did know that uh eels are part of like medieval cuisine there's a uh person on twitter eel historian
0: yes he's great because yeah eels were used as currency apparently yeah like you were paying your taxes in In eels eels. yeah
1: and yeah lampreys are kind of you know squiggly they're a bit more leechy yeah the the creature leech not the whatever fruit right but, uh, oh, I don't, don't think I'd really want to eat anything in its own blood though as I say that I am not, so I maybe take
3: that back
0: right. but yeah <laughs> lampreys uh, yeah lamp- lampreys were were quite popular so uh King Henry the first actually according to legend at least died of eating too many lampreys
1: really yeah, yeah. bad death like, yeah, well, because his
0: his doctor told him not to eat so many lampreys because uh, you know, it's one of those like diet suggestions based on like humoral balance. Because yeah. lampreys are cold and wet, right? So mm. I if you if that is an issue that you have, you should avoid lampreys, or at least, as this recipe in fact does, you should try to counteract that a bit by a lot of very heavy spicing
3: mm-hmm. um,
0: to to kind of counteract the cold and wetness a little bit but yes apparently his his doctor allegedly at least and this is i think maybe more legend but it does go back to the middle ages that he his doctor instructed him that he really needed to to stop eating so many lampreys and then he you know ate a big old dish oh, of lampreys and and that's a good thing eating lampreys wow that is
2: i've just actually thought about something you know when when they go bean also has a second a third role when she b- tries to be an ambassador and fails. yes Completely, and utterly. I
1: was Should quite also. Oh,
0: sorry. Continue. I thought you were. No, no. I
2: thought it was just quite interesting because it was obviously something that women haven't been allowed to do for like a really long time.
0: Well, but it is interesting in that there are examples here and there of uh, women of women playing some kind of diplomatic role, especially when mm-hmm. there are family connections, which in, yeah. in this case there aren't. In this case, it arguably would have made more sense for Una to yeah, act yeah, yeah. as something of an ambassador. But uh, there there are cases in which women did at least uh, kind of in practice function as ambassadors in uh, in certain situations and were involved in diplomacy. Yeah.
1: Well, and then in season two, there's a whole episode about Bean wanting to be a playwright oh and gosh, the yes. obstacles that she faces in regard to that, being a woman. Uh-huh.
2: Interesting. interesting. The
0: vibes. Ooh, yeah, that's really interesting. Right.
1: But she's not able mm. to title her own work. So it's right. issues with that. So yeah. yeah, that's in the later part of season too. But that's another thing that yeah. a woman should be able to be, but isn't, like a, at least from what I've noticed, a lot of medieval female writers were like nuns or um, right. relate like an anchorite yeah. related yeah. to the church in one form or another.
2: Um, Let well, yeah. I me mean, also just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say.
0: So, and I guess there are, and there are the women troubadours. So there are a few mm. here and there, but there's obviously, it's definitely not not super common, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't think of any like other examples in season
2: one. Did you, Elo, of like fact versus fiction? I didn't notice any more than that. I think the ones that we was- spoke, that was more or less wide like seen. I will say though that I thought that like as you like you have to tell us when you watch the next two seasons because yeah uh, it'll be interesting to know whether you agree or disagree but I did think that like then it gets more anachronistic if that makes sense mm. okay. I don't know if you agree Meg
1: I mean I I guess it just I think it gets a much more high fantasy mm. moving on mm-hmm. from season one you experienced the beginning of season two heaven and hell in the first two episodes and they like are places they go to which are not medieval in any way shape or form based off like literature you would look at really i think they're much more kind of modern or again like broad trope versions rather than this idea of like dreamland which of course just even the
0: name dreamland is implying something yeah. so obviously some kind of fantasy ish element yeah, yeah. There, and there's some interesting just little touches occasionally and so the the place that they end up going to get the elixir of life clearly seems like they're basically in ancient egypt now mm-hmm. the place where the mysterious people are hanging out who sent the demon we get a very brief look at the architecture you'll get to see it a little bit
1: more and okay you might get more of either middle east or even like some aztec oh yeah. okay because there are like lots of sharp lines.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. In- okay. Yeah. We only got a very brief glance. So. Yeah. Okay.
1: Hmm. Yeah. No, there are definitely. And then Steamland, as I said earlier, is like 1920s mm-hmm. steam right metropolis kind of vibe.
3: Yeah.
1: It does play on certain tropes. Like we will see a character on a steam horse. <laughs> uh, so it's like a horse that's steam powered, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but then in Steamland, there's also some like very Victorian era spaces. Yeah of like adventurers and explorers mm-hmm. yeah then we have the swamp land
0: whose name even though we've said it numerous times i just still can't remember what it's called Meyer. and there are some people who live there who are clearly just like florida hicks
1: oh yeah it's definitely very much like what is a swamp back
0: by right. you like <laughs> right
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know is problematic but
0: right but yeah, so there's uh yeah, there's some interesting kind of blending of things. And obviously a lot of these are deliberate anachronisms, mm. uh, which uh, which actually I t- they tend not to bother me as much.
1: Yeah. I feel like there's so many and they're all so deliberate that. Yeah. Yeah. That attention to like, oh, this is anachronistic detail. You're like, oh, it's just all fair game. Yeah. Yeah. Which- like, I know, Elo, you said that the introduction of Steamland, especially in
2: season three, you were not the most keen on. I kind of go back and forth. I thought it just, like, it confused things for me in a, in a way that I just didn't appreciate. Mm. Like, I understand, like, yeah. uh, you know, it was one of those things where, to me, it just, it it nearly worked, but it didn't work mm-hmm. as much as I wanted it to. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
1: I think it'll depend on how they handle it moving Better. forward, perhaps. Yeah. Because the show is very, like, yes. self-aware. Like, you have the character. I don't... Mm-hmm. I think he's shown up in season one. I think it was the Castle Party Massacre one. He leans out the window and he's like, what are the rules of this universe? You know, when you have magic and potions that can just... Oh, yes, with the parking
0: issue. Yeah, and like that... It's a it's a talking flaming arrow bit that he says yeah. that the Vikings sling, like, talked to my flaming arrow. And he's like, oh, do you actually have a talking flaming arrow?
1: Yeah, and... Then he gets shot through and dies, but he, right. spoiler alert, like he comes back and he kind of functions as this meta, metacritical metafiction character that kind of goes, but mm-hmm. what are the rules in a world right. like this? Huh. You know, Let's, it yeah. can get loose. Um, so with that, I think also the anachronism and everything, they're like yeah. aware that, yeah, sometimes the laws of the land don't make sense, but yeah. like reminder of the suspension of disbelief that this is in fact an animated high fantasy series.
0: Right. Well, there was one other thing that I wanted to jump into, and this is going to be for the Historia at Veritas segment where I discuss a real historical event, person, or phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And inspired by the prominent place taken by alcohol, in this series I wanted to talk a little bit about that it's actually going to start with a quote which is actually a bit late it's from 1630 but it is presented as a a conversation between I guess between types of alcohol wine I am for the court beer the city calls for beer and then ale but ale bonnie ale like a lord of the soil in the country shall domineer (laughs) And one of the things that I wanted to then in particular talk about just really for fun that is very tangentially related is the fact that as that notes, there is a distinction between ale and beer because Mm -hmm. it then can actually lead into a little discussion on the relationship between the production of alcohol and gender. Oh, yeah. Ale wise. Yes. So the big difference between what is ale and what is beer is the introduction of hops, and hops are, of course, what adds uh, the particularly bitter flavor, which is, you know, common in IPAs, especially really, especially really up the hops, which I like, but my, my, my original co-host for this podcast, uh, he and I joke about this a lot because he hates IPAs. Um, <laughs> sorry, Ollie, IPAs are great, but they would not have been the taste characteristic of the ale produced earlier in the Middle Ages, because in, uh, or especially in England, so mm-hmm. in, uh, they're kind of import. Uh, it's like a style of making beer that's really sort of imported to England from the Netherlands and Germany, where mm-hmm. you have this use of hops, which adds this bitter flavor. But the main use for them is that they're also preservatives. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah, I think I knew so, that actually. Yeah. yeah. And so this means that if you brew a beer with hops, it lasts longer and therefore you can brew much larger quantities, Mm -hmm. uh, which also makes it potentially a more profitable trade. And uh, you also, it then, you know, becomes used for things like, you know, provisioning the military and they can, you know, take it and travel long distances and, you know, have stores with them, which Mm -hmm. is something that before the use of hops, uh, it basically would just not last quite as long. This also has some interesting connections to a history of women's work, which is uh, Mm. discussed in particular in uh, Judith Bennett's book, Ale, Beer, and Brewsters in England, which I highly recommend. Oh my God. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) Yeah, great, great book. So essentially what she is uh, talking about in this project is that we see this transition From the brewing industry in England actually being dominated by women, by these alewives or brewsters, uh, the term for female brewer. And then starting about 1350, it's uh, that declines. And then by the time you get into the 16th century, brewing becomes a male dominated field as it in fact remains oddly today. Yeah. Uh, brewing is as uh, somebody who has at various points been really involved in the craft beer, in uh, the uh, kind of craft beer circles, it's still very, very male. It's not true. Like, so the people but...
2: I know who are involved in that are all male, and there's mm-hmm. not much communication, I guess, mm-hmm. like in how they explain it, even, but that's not that surprising.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like craft beer masculinity things one could discuss that I won't necessarily get into in (laughs) detail here, but I have lots of thoughts about. Fair enough. Uh, As yeah, having, as I said, been like in kind of craft beer circles at various points. But if you, as I said, you go back to this period before 1350, uh, you see that brewing is actually mostly a women's trade, as I said, so we're talking in particular about the English context. And one of the things that's really interesting is that the reason you have this transition actually has a lot to do with this introduction of hops that uh, this makes brewing something that has the potential to be more profitable. And this is important because one of the things that you see, and this is a big part of Bennett's argument ultimately, she initially thought she was going to write a book that was about very, that was very fundamentally about change over time and about women being pushed out of a profession and about something changing having to do with the nature of women's work. But what she found is that women's work actually kind of fundamentally stays the same. It's just that as brewing becomes more profitable, it becomes a high status trade as opposed to a low status and considered to be low skilled form of work. And so therefore it's no longer the kind of work that women get into. So the definition of what's considered women's work remains fundamentally similar. It's just that the set of things that fall into that adjusts somewhat over time. And in particular, in brewing adjusts as you get this possibility for it being, you know, as something that you could make a lot more money on. And it's also, of course, another way in which women are being pushed out of this is because if it is more profitable in this particular way, Mm-hmm. The way you make it that profitable is also by putting a lot of capital into it, right? Mm-hmm. That you, if you're going to make really large quantities of beer, you need to buy a lot of uh, raw ingredients or, and raw materials upfront mm-hmm. in order to actually do that brewing work. And you need to have a lot more space to do the brewing in. Yeah. This means suddenly also that brewing, which used to be basically something that you essentially did almost as a kind of household or in-based trade or craft become something that becomes sort of pseudo-industrial and that requires these kind of massive capital investments. Mm-hmm. And women are much less likely to have the amount of capital at their disposal that they would need to actually engage in brewing in the way in, in the way that actually is, you know, becoming particularly profitable. Wow. Mm, interesting. One of the other pieces of this is that you start to see these really negative portrayals of uh, AOI's Brewsters as being uh, in some ways, uh, sort of unsavory, disreputable characters.
1: Yeah, like, because, I mean, everyone wants to drink beer and right. ale and wine, right? Like, not only is it tasty, but it makes you feel good, et cetera, et cetera. And because the women who are alewives before they, you know, eventually get kind of pushed out of the trade, they're seen as these powerful figures that also mm-hmm. sell this, you know, elixir that could be seen as corrupting or whatnot. And Over time, these women and their powerful structures uh, begin to be seen as disobedient to their husbands or sexually deviant and cheating their customers out of strong ale by watering it down. So this kind of starts in the like, from what I understand, the like late or mid 1300s up until like 1540, like this grows and grows and yeah. There become laws where, like, women can't between the ages of 14 and 40, like, can't sell beer or ale. I'm sorry, or they have to have like certain limitations on them to do this so like at that time pop culture wise they kind of become these negative figures there's an episode of the podcast buffering the vampire slayer that talks about this in really great detail too and i'm trying to recall if the book that they talk about is the same one that you mentioned or if it's a different one i'll have to dig it up
0: because she does definitely talk about some of these discourses and that is and that's what i find really fascinating too right is that you have uh, these discourses about brewer about women brewers uh, being Disreputable and being potentially dangerous, and uh, that this is starting up at precisely the same time as you see men entering the brewing trade because the brewing trade is becoming profitable, and uh, that you have all of these things connecting with one another. And I also find this all really fascinating in that, while, as I said, part of the big argument is that it's not necessarily that the kind of definition of women's work is becoming narrower, that basically stays the same, but that this particular trade become something that's less available to women. But I think thinking about this does also really raise some important uh, things to think about in terms of the fact that, of course, history and progress are very much not linear Mm -hmm. and uh, that if we're thinking in particular about gender and the kinds of options available to women, it's not a straight line that things just kept getting better and better. Mm -hmm. And uh, arguably there are ways in which things got worse in the early modern period or that there were at least some very, uh, very serious and, uh, you know, different sets of concerns that women at that point would have had.
1: Yes. Sure. And tangentially, I mean, Bean never. I mean, we see Bean and disenchantment right at the bar all the time, consuming mm-hmm. this. I think it's the beginning of season two, but perhaps it was season one. Just you know, thinking about ale and alcohol being corrupting and whatnot. Lucy actually buys the pub or that bar, seems, yes, Dreamland. Right. Oh,
0: oh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So
1: yeah. that's not that big of a spoiler, but so there's just kind of that with this too. Yeah. The show kind of hmm. playing with interesting. That a demon running a bar who happens to be friend with, with being our female protagonist. So yeah, Mm -hmm. just kind
0: of. Yeah. And I mean, and the bar scenes are interesting too. And because bars are, uh, you know, bars and taverns are these interesting spaces in that they're, sort of mixed gender but there's also sort of a sense increasingly especially into the late middle ages that maybe there's something a little disreputable about a woman who is spending too much time at the bar Mm -hmm. yeah and that I think is showing up in interesting ways as well and it is often that when she's at these bars they are actually majority male spaces Mm -hmm. I believe
2: it's quite interesting because I feel like this is coming kind of my mind is going towards you know Flemish art and Flemish mm-hmm. scenes of like interiors barn interiors and that kind of idea that when you do see women present they tend yeah. to be like mimicked rather than actually portrayed if that makes sense right
1: yeah, like caricaturesque
2: yeah of. yeah
1: or you have you know the
2: very sultuous uh, bar
1: wench a la oktoberfest idea which i don't know when that came yeah. about, but it's like yeah you either have a caricaturist woman that's either like very flamboyant and all over the place or mm-hmm. you get the hyper sexualized later on right. idea of a woman that you can't just have a woman in the bar drinking right. beer because she
0: could, you? <laughs> could
1: do that yeah it's like right i
2: i have a question but i think it's kind of a, a strange question so i'm not sure if you will have an answer but i was wondering you know like because obviously making beer and alcohol like revolves quite a lot around fermentation you know and that can mm-hmm. go wrong so I was kind of wondering if like in any of these researches there's anything about like that becomes the female like the women's fault because like the fermentation you know something kind of technical and scientific that can go just wrong
0: so I haven't looked this up so I could be wrong but I think yeah. there is actually occasionally a like if a menstruating woman gets too close to the wine, it sours it (laughs) Uh, language. I think that's one of the things that comes up every now and then in terms of the like weird portrayals of menstruation and menstruating women. But uh, yeah, it is also fun. I mean, there's, you know, this is just like my like, you know, also like liking craft beer, but it's fun that uh, at least the story that is told now about sour and wild ales is that they use a particular kind of wild yeast, which is a stuff that initially like got in by accident. Oh, and then they realized that it was tasty. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just keep,
1: we don't know what it is, but let's keep doing it.
0: Yeah. And it's like, and it is done by like open fermentation. Like you, I I don't think this is true anymore to the same extent you would basically like ferment things and kind of like leave them sort of out like, and Mm -hmm. let to like, let these just like wild, these like wild yeast particles like in, like in. Mm
1: -hmm. And to answer your question, Elo, I also wonder if at any point, if there was any, like, she's cursed my well,
2: yeah because yeah, also it. you know if, mm-hmm. if, if if you get it wrong you can kill someone like right. yeah alcohol poisoning or like yeah you know like i've got a, a-, like, a-
1: and stuff yeah. yeah i know that yeah. in saudi arabia yeah, people
2: sometimes have made their own alcohol like expats mm-hmm. And then usually like it can go really wrong because if you do oh, it yeah. at home. Like, yeah, liquor, liquor yourself. especially.
0: Yeah, liquor especially, I think is like maybe because it's a higher alcohol content, I think is, is like particularly dangerous.
1: Mm. Yeah, make
0: um, 200
1: proof ethanol. Oops. Right. <laughs>
0: and I think I think in part because it's lower ABV, I think it's it's hard to make beer that's going to kill you it might not be good but I think it's harder to make beer that's actually like dangerous fair enough you know, fair enough and yeah that that comes up with I, I have some friends who do home brewing and uh, did a little bit about myself at some point a long time ago but uh, yeah so that was that was kind of my sense with uh, with beer is that it's it's hard it's pretty hard at least to manage to kill yourself with beer
2: Okay, good that's know.
0: good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if anyone wants to try homebrewing. So we can now move into the Fabula Nostra segment where we come up with some kind of media project perhaps inspired in some way by this one. So anything off the bat that uh, jumps out to you that you are interested in? Well, Maybe. so
1: Elo and I talked about this earlier because I, at first mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. But I've started rewatching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for mm-hmm. like recreational fluff. watch. Yeah. And I was like, what if so it's hard because Disenchantment is still running, right? So it's still a show that's yeah. going. And I think that the fact that it's a cartoon is working for it because it allows it right lots of agency that you can do just because it's animated. You don't have to Right You don't have to worry about big sentences. Right. But if we're in an ideal world where I, it doesn't matter and I can bring back people who are dead or whatever and do this thing, I'm like, well, what if we kept it episodic, but we made it like it's always sunny Philadelphia meets flea bag. So we break mm-hmm. the fourth wall mm-hmm. and have shenanigans and characters and keep the also like hyper awareness of it's always sunny, but also nothing is like sacred. Like they make fun of yeah. anything, everything, not politically correct, but is aware of that. And then also take this, like, I don't know if story-wise, if I would really change much maybe. And then I also thought of some casting choices because I mm-hmm. think the voice actors are great, but I was like, yeah. oh, let's see if there are other people. So Keep Abby Jacobson as Bean or Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Bean. You know, Fleabag, keep mm-hmm. that because she's just great. And then I thought, okay, well, who would be a good Dagmar? And I thought Amy Poehler would be a fun Dagmar.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And then I was thinking about who would be King Zog. And I'm torn between Jack Black or Nicolas Cage. Hmm. Um I love them Nicholas
0: Cage would be interesting. I feel I like mean, that, would, that would maybe be a very different King's Zog, but I think that would be fun. I love
1: Nicolas Cage. <laughs> 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 she says that <laughs> she pulls out her sequin Nicolas Cage pillow. So yeah, those are two different, like, interpretations, but mm-hmm. fun. And then I was like, okay, well, what about the characters? And I was like, well, would, like, Elfo and Lucy be animated or, like, humans or, like, yeah. puppet people? <laughs> but i thought robin williams would be fun as elfo like channeling his mm. mork and mini mork character yeah and then for lucy i was like i mean again the voice actor is great and i was like oh but like what if we had like Bo burnham like <laughs> or somebody or charlie day from it's always sunny mm-hmm. and then my last one i didn't get super far but in the bentwood episode when i mean you see the bentwood king in the first pilot episode and yeah then later, and i'm like that character has to be Will Ferrell and Zoolander. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, that is that character. And then Merkimer would stay as Merkimer. Like, he's just that character, I feel. Yeah. Um, So that's mine. It's not really, like, I mean, plot-wise, again, I'm saying just, like, medievalism run wild. I'd maybe try to bring in some more fun anachronism as well as more fun, like, medieval accuracies.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
1: don't know, like, what those would be but it's kind of changed the tone of that a little bit. So that's
2: yeah. mine. <laughs> oh, mine is kind of weird. Mine would be based in like an investment banking situation and all based in the kind <laughs> of realistic mm-hmm. high drugs, except that instead of cocaine, they do like psychedelics. And then the people who are like, you have like interspaced moments between like the mundane Mm-hmm. investment banking stuff and then they kind of go into this dreamland where they mm. I would animate them and then have like the storyline and the punchlines yeah, and stuff and then they come back and forth between like their working life and you know the more drugs they take mm-hmm. the more confused they get between the two realities so mm. I thought that couldn't kind of work but I have no idea cast wise or really yeah. any more than that but that was just my general <laughs> That's
0: very fun. Uh, I I actually also on this particular occasion didn't really come up with a cast, but in some ways similar, Megan, to the kind of thing that you were talking about, you know, I've been really liking this show, but I still do think that ultimately one thing that I do often find frustrating is the fact that the vast majority of things said in the Middle Ages are about princes and princesses and queens, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see something that's really instead about normal people. And uh, so inspired by this show in particular, I think that if you had a show that was centered, like say centered around a bar and had a Brewster as a main character and was a kind of like cheers or it's always sunny yeah. in Philadelphia, like kind of like bar centered, just ordinary people, situational comedy, but it's set in the Middle Ages and mm-hmm. is centered around a medieval tavern. Yeah. I would really enjoy that and I think it would also really work as an animated comedy and uh, you know I, I think this voice cast is excellent and I think you could almost just like we kind of like reshuffle uh, things a little bit. Uh, I mean yeah. maybe maybe Bean is not Princess Bean. she's Brewster Bean now. you know she could still still have a still have a demon that you know shows up every now and then you know maybe we set it sort of late middle ages and people might start to be a little like you know, kind of iffy about what's happening there and with uh, with her and her demon and her brewing but <laughs> if we if we went for like a 15th century ish setting oh, but uh, but yeah fun. that's but yeah that's that's what I would want to do because as like I said I just want more medieval set films that are about ordinary people as opposed like because they're just so heavily focused on royalty and yeah. like high nobility
2: I feel like when I think about the representation of normal people in the middle ages like what comes to mind which isn't very like definitely not an accurate thing but it's like the in the name of the bros when he meets like the the people of the village and they just don't speak and don't say anything that's kind of like the imagery that I have which is obviously completely inaccurate
3: yeah they're often
1: shown as like ignorant or I don't know yeah just the dirty ignorant not sophisticated people and it's yeah it's really not
0: you got the sort of Monty Python bits uh with like the peasants in their anarcho collective yeah uh, sort of interesting
1: the Monty Python scene uh I I I talked about this when we talked about Monty Python Mm -hmm. in one of our first episodes but also like the witch burning scene and they're like asking what ducking is and they're like they're like (laughs) talking about what does ducking mean and they're like like a piece of wood if they float if they sink and like they're just trying to figure out what this rule is and it's just so funny because it's like yeah maybe people were confused at first they're like what are you talking about what are you doing <laughs> but yeah it would be fun if we like merged all these together
2: you know yeah like, oh god that would be really entertaining
1: <laughs> <laughs> netflix are you are you listening amazon <laughs> maybe not Disney. me yeah but- <laughs>
0: right yeah no amazon like do do the rival show to to disenchantment uh.
1: yeah because um, yeah i don't think amazon has any animated shows i think netflix no. is the dominant yeah. one with that you no know, having no yeah. jack horseman
0: and I hey, that a couple of years mouth. it will just you know yeah the like all adult animation yeah yeah here's out amazon yeah <laughs> so with that i think we can now get into finally the estimatio or rating section rating this uh this piece of this show on a scale of one to five based on whatever entirely subjective criteria that you personally (laughs) each see fit brilliant ella okay yeah i
2: (laughs) give it a 3.5 out of five just because i think that sometimes it falls short and when it Uh falls short it really falls short and i think i'd be interested in like seeing more diverse background and diverse scenes um yeah because some of the humor is often very much the same that, mm-hmm. that's my subjective view of it
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah sorry I had to do quick math because I was thinking of it out of 10 I was like oh no what, what is it out of five which anyways <laughs> so yeah like you LO I'm just torn between like a 3.2 and a Ooh. 3.5 mm-hmm. <laughs> that's quite specific um... 3.2 <laughs> low because there are things especially in later seasons that I really do enjoy but yes sometimes I wish that it would break out of the trope shell that exists Mm -hmm. of like these patterns that we've been discussing you know of princess versus the world in a way yeah this stereotypical king and the evil stepmother and I appreciate the way that it does try to play with and at times subvert these but also. There's so much more you can do, mm-hmm. and like Ello, I think that sometimes the comedy is pushing it a little too hard. It's trying too hard to be mm-hmm. trying to be funny, and then there are moments where a joke just falls completely flat, and it's kind of like, oh, I don't, my my skin's crawling. I don't like it. I don't like the pause of no laughter, but that. In regards to, like, certain types of representation, it starts to do a little bit better, at least in regards to gender, or not gender, Mm -hmm. um, like, sexual orientation in the third season. Oh, hmm. okay. Bean has a fun little romance that breaks any sort of heteronormative expectations, and I really appreciated that, because I thought it was going well. Considering it's a cartoon, and it's not, like, it has decent racial like spread like we were saying Mm -hmm. earlier like in the background it's quite diverse but it would be nice at times to have more it's it's interesting when you're in a like high fantasy with like elves and I almost said orcs but this isn't Tolkien ogres and Mm -hmm. everything because those are, are they're the different species could in a way potentially be considered as like they're all part of something that's different so like Elfo Lucy and Bean are this very Mixed cohort of people, but at the same time, everything else about them is like beans, blonde haired, yeah, queen, yeah, not queen, princess. So, there are certain things like that at times, but I am waiting for season four. I do enjoy it, I do have moments that I laugh out loud. And considering it's medieval, they could have fallen a lot more flat on their face, I think. And I'm excited to see where it goes because I do think that it's getting stronger. Even though season three wasn't my favorite, I think that it has potential to really Mm -hmm. get up into that 3.5 plus range.
2: I hope it doesn't Mm -hmm. fall through now. I'm kind of a bit wary because like, what if it just doesn't, what if it just doesn't do what we want it to do?
1: (laughs) I just hope that it ends with like season four, possibly season five. I hate it when a show just like- Right, if it goes too far. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought that was supernatural, not an animated series. Right. Like, yeah. well, well. He, he does
0: have a plan, so uh so hopefully hoping... that's uh, that's a good sign.
1: Eric Kripke had a plan for supernatural. It wasn't supposed mm, to be more than well. five seasons, and then we got to what 16, so
0: Oof. Right. So <laughs> yeah, well uh we'll see with this. Uh I'm actually yeah. gonna go a bit higher. I'm actually gonna go for a four. Ooh. And the reason I'm going to go for a four is because uh I have, in the course of doing this podcast, grown increasingly less tolerant of the many, many, many variations (laughs) of uh, the kind of grim, dark middle ages of uh, just everything is very violent and everybody's very depressed and everything is gray. And I find that very frustrating and I really have a deep appreciation in general for the idea of doing medieval comedies I'd really mm-hmm. like there to be more medieval things that don't feel all the same of these like gray movies with twelve ba- with twelve showpiece battles in them. Yes. <laughs> and I, I just yes. yeah, and I just especially because I cover so many of those movies mm-hmm. that this I think I, I have a real appreciation for as something just that is different. It's mm-hmm. telling an original story. It's also it's not just your seven thousandth Arthur or Robin Hood. Yeah. Um, in a you know medieval inspired universe which is not idyllic but which also isn't kind of constant misery either that's in some ways very rare and so I I definitely I, I agree with a lot of the critiques that you just said but I definitely don't think it's perfect but I like that it's doing something different with the middle ages than most other media and uh and I do overall I mean you know as I've said it's very close in a lot of ways to Futurama and so it's a humor that mostly just very much kind of worked for me
2: yeah. completely fair Thank enough you. really yes you're like yeah. if you watch the this- yeah, with a lot of video films, which doesn't go
0: bad. Yeah, yeah,
1: and not everything can be as wonderful as Shrek. I, know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't revisited Shrek in a long time, so uh, one one of these days I'll have to watch and cover it.
1: It does not disappoint, yeah. in my opinion. I feel like it's just ages, like a nice fine wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Well, I'll have to have to check it out. So are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet?
2: Um, so you can find us on social media by typing um, on Instagram, for example, by typing podcast.modern.medieval. We're on Facebook, just type Modern Medieval Podcast. And if you'd like to listen to us ramble on in our on our own podcast, um, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, YouTube, just type Modern Medieval Podcast, and we should be there.
1: Yeah. And finally, you can also find us on Twitter under the handle at medieval underscore modern, where we tweet about what we plan on doing in the future, sharing some news and also weekly updates on Mm -hmm. the, the episode that we release because we do weekly episodes. Yes. So yeah, hopefully, all right. Just come check us out.
0: <laughs> yes. So yeah, please uh, go and check out Modern Medieval if you have an interest in uh, medievalism and uh, and in those intersections between the medieval and the modern. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate interview on Apple Podcasts. I will read new five star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Medieval Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you again, Megan and Ella, for joining me. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's a blast. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.